Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Global trade wars, strength of the U.S. dollar, strikes in Argentina. Let's talk about emerging markets with Arvind Rajan, managing director and the head of global and macro at PGM Fixed Income, helping to manage more than $700 billion of customer assets. Arvind, a pleasure to have you with us. Give us your thoughts right now on what is going on with emerging market investments. Yeah, thank you for having me on, uh, Tim. It's uh, it's a fascinating time in markets because, um, as often happens during periods of tightening global liquidity and global volatility, emerging markets have been taking it on the nose. So we have had um, nine consecutive weeks of um, outflows. We've had a bit of a slow bleed, but there's not yet a total capitulation in terms of emerging assets. Um, in fact, uh, you know, it's countries with uh, with, which have current account deficits that uh, have actually sold off the most because those are the countries that uh, benefited the most from yield-chasing inflows. We've had elections, you know, just now in Turkey, but uh, looming in Mexico and Brazil. Uh, trade wars obviously are taking a toll and geopolitical issues and mm -hmm. idiosyncratic problems in EM. Yeah. But I want to tell you why I still like EM in spite of all of this. And... Um, uh, it is somewhat of a falling knife. I don't think the sell-off is necessarily over yet, uh, but I see several bright spots here for emerging market debt in particular. All right. So is it idiosyncratic bright spots where you're looking at specific countries and, uh, and specific companies in emerging markets, or is it, uh, is it more broad than that? It's actually a bit of both. So the, on the broader side, I'd say that uh, the assets are now ch much cheaper. So we've had a 5 to 8% sell-off in debt, hard currency as well as local currency. And I believe that the leverage cycle, broadly speaking, in emerging markets is not as scary as it was in the past. Uh, a more diverse group of investors today than, than in the past, stronger reserves and strong commodities. Um, and so far, a pretty healthy China. Having said that, obviously, a China-U.S. trade war could challenge that last point. Um, what I'd say, basically, is that idiosyncratically, there are a couple of things going for EM. I mentioned commodities, and that helps the commodity exporters. But also, there's policy responses to the volatility. So Emerging market policymakers are not sitting by idly as global markets are uh, pushing their assets down. They're responding with interest rate increases and with uh, macroeconomic, um, uh, macroeconomic responses that well, would strengthen these countries. Just I, I have to break in there because yeah. we saw that Argentina uh, raised interest rates to 40 percent three times in one week. And we yes. saw Turkey uh, try also to raise interest rates and markets weren't budging. They weren't buying it. They were not getting control over their currencies. A lot of people are speculating that in emerging markets that some of these central banks have lost control. Do you disagree? Yes, I do disagree. I, I think that in certain individual cases, and I think you might have argued for a, 
for a response that came sooner rather than later. So um, it's true that I think in the case of Turkey in particular that the policy response has been lagging. It now remains to be seen whether after the election and uh, Erdogan's uh, confirmation for another term that he uses that consolidated power to take more definitive uh, economic reform actions and policy actions. Um, in Argentina's case, uh, as you know, uh, they have actually gone ahead and uh, applied for a $50 billion loan program with the IMF and other multilateral lenders. So I think that uh, with that in their pocket and with the determination to do better on current account deficits, Argentina is um, you know, doing appropriate things you know, from the policy standpoint. Uh, it is true that markets are never fully in sync with these. Uh, markets are often evaluating whether these policy responses are adequate at the moment that they are announced. Uh, but these panics, when they occur, are often in emerging markets an opportunity to buy cheap assets. And I think that this is not an exception to the 20 or so sell-offs that we've seen in emerging markets over the last 20 years, uh, each of which in many cases has mean reverted, you know, back to to uh, higher prices in subsequent months. Arvin, are there specific companies that you have on a list that when they fall in value, you say these we got to scoop up or we have to add to a bigger position? So um, I can't speak about individual company investments, but I can tell you that there are different opportunity sets when it comes to hard currency debt, the currency itself, and local rates. And we tend to think about those three in separate dimensions. And the fourth dimension is, of course, corporate debt. And corporate debt has actually been least impacted of these four asset classes this year. Uh, I see the best opportunity set for investors in EM uh, away from equities, because we don't do equities. But we see that in hard currency debt, because yeah. that has been uh, taking it really on the nose. And it's because of investor-related portfolio outflows, it is true that some of these countries have too large a percentage of their markets uh, owned by foreigners. And yeah. I think that that's uh, exacerbated volatility. I'd say countries such as uh, Mexico, which is about to have its election, um, Brazil, where there's uncertainty around the election outcome, Indonesia, um, where the ownership of foreign assets has created a lot of volatility in spite of decent economic management are examples of places where we might find really good um, investments yeah. uh, that are, that are uh, now presenting value. Uh, just real quick, in about 30 seconds, I'm wondering, Arvind, uh, the MSCI index of developing nation currencies is down about a half a percent today. It's its mm -hmm. worst performance on a Monday since August 2016. Do you think that uh, these uh, EM currencies are poised to rally, or do you think that they're going to deteriorate further as the dollar strengthens? I think tactically we are concerned about those currencies. I think that you know the, while the dollar is on a strengthening spree as it is today, uh, it is definitely a falling knife. Um, that said, I would say that if you took a somewhat longer horizon, like uh, one to three years, that these currencies are actually looking, starting to look really cheap, both on a nominal as well as on a real effective exchange rate basis, 
Um, and the reason why is because global growth, we expect, will become more synchronized over the rest ah. of this year. Um, we do think that inflation pressures will not really, in the base case, increase significantly. Mm-hmm. So the Fed is, is roughly priced in for 2008, and the rally in the dollar overall should therefore come to an end. And yeah. in turn, you know, the pull of capital out of emerging market countries should abate. Arvind Rajan, thank you so much for being with us. Arvind Rajan, Managing Director and Head of Global and Macro at PGM Fixed Income, talking about why he likes emerging markets fixed income from here. Could the United States prevent Chinese companies from investing in U.S. companies? And what could be the effects? Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion writer for Deals and Industrials, joins us now about potential curbs on Chinese investments. Brooke, what have you learned in terms of detail about what the president is proposing? So I think the most significant thing here is he's looking to use this sort of antiquated, not very commonly employed tactic of invoking a national economic emergency to justify stricter controls on Chinese investments in the U.S. And then they're also looking at export controls of key U.S. technologies. Now, I will note, it's not like Chinese companies have been making a ton of takeovers in the U.S. as it is. You know, there's already a significant deterrent in place, given how the number of deals that CFIUS has already cracked down upon and sort of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. We've seen deal activity really slow to a trickle. And that's not just takeovers, that's investments, that's joint ventures. You're just really not seeing that deal flow. So does that rise to the level of a national economic emergency? I would argue no, that there's already a deterrent in place for these deals. So there is a real question about how President Trump is going about implementing some of these directives, rules, orders. I'm not sure exactly how they will be implemented. But then there's a question of what they mean. I mean, investments is pretty ambiguous and, uh, you know, really important sort of central areas to the U.S., what is what does that mean? I mean, <laughs> break this down for us. What are we talking about here? Well, the hard thing about national security is, as we've seen, the Trump administration has really used this to justify all kinds of things that are not actually national security risks. Like, does a car imported from Germany really pose a danger to America and its citizens? No. But there's just so much flexibility, so much latitude once you start talking about national security that you could really be talking about a very broad swath of the economy. So going back to this idea of export controls, the Wall Street Journal has reported this would be targeting technologies that China is looking to uh, you know, elevate through its 2025 initiative. That includes aerospace. That includes clean energy cars. That includes semiconductors, advanced materials. I mean, you start talking about this, you're really a number of companies could be impacted. And it's not exactly clear how this would work. But even taking away a decent chunk of any of these companies' business to China would be very painful, especially for somebody like Boeing. 
Well, and Boeing shares down today, right? About yes, 3%. about 3%. So I have to wonder, just to push back a little bit and play devil's advocate here, you know, some may argue China has been stealing intellectual property from the U.S. for a long time. It entices companies to come over to that nation and then uh, basically copies the different uh, trademarks that they have and then pumps out their own stuff. And this is President Trump trying to curtail that activity and say, you guys can't do that ahead of your Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, that you know, for, for 2025. Understood. But what was interesting to me about this is it's not going after deals that have already been done. It's not seeking to undo transactions. It would just be limiting future investment. So at that point, these investments, these joint ventures that exist that have supposedly been facilitating this transfer of U.S. technology to Chinese firms, technically those relationships would be allowed to continue. And I don't know that, you know, limiting U.S. exports of technologies is necessarily going to have the impact that's desired. You start broadening this out and making this such a wide definition of key U.S. technology. I think that may ultimately end up being more painful for U.S. companies. I mean, going back to Boeing, so they're really trying to ramp up their China investment. That's a huge market for them, a huge source of growth. But China is already developing its own domestic plane manufacturer that could be a real threat to Boeing as it is. You limit Boeing's exports ahead of that. I mean, you're talking about a really potentially painful loss of market share. Okay. But just to continue Lisa's point, I mean, if the United States is going to secure its uh, physical security uh, and military uh, security, um, can it be argued that you can't have it both ways and that you're going to have to sacrifice profits in order to protect uh, the national interests of the country. And that would mean limiting the transfer of technology that is sensitive and that could be used eventually to supplant U.S. companies such as Boeing, like you just described. And that what is happening now is something that, while it may be, quote, too late, it is at least an effort on the part of the administration to protect the national security interests of the nation. But they're also trying to make the argument that this makes America more hospitable for businesses. They're trying to well, argue that, that, that the, it that makes that may American be the kind of companies sales, stronger. You know, that's the the marketing. That may be the marketing yeah. around it. But uh, but in terms of the actual, you know, being able to transfer military technology or technology that could be used in a military uh, setting or anything that's sensitive, that as Lisa said, is pretty well known that Chinese companies and many companies can just copy. Sure. And I think there's a valid argument for paying close attention to that and trying to limit those instances when they do happen. I will you know, point out that CFIUS has already been rather active on this front. President Obama prevented a Chinese-owned company from building a wind farm because it was too close to a Navy base in Ohio. So there are already these considerations under play. There's a bill in front of Congress right now that would tighten CFIUS's scrutiny of these investments, give them more ammunition to go after these types of deals in a broader range of industries and a broader range of scenarios. I would argue that that's probably a a more powerful way to actually curb this than just invoking national economic emergencies and taking a unilateral approach to this. Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion Deals and Industrial Columnist. Thank you so much, as always, for your insights.
how do small towns attract bigger businesses to their shores or to their lands in order to drive up economic activity? This is the question at the heart of an article that Craig Torres wrote uh, that I found truly compelling. Craig Torres is economy and Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us now from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in D.C. Craig, uh, talk to us about Greenville and why you decided to focus in on this particular city for a story. Okay, so uh, hi, Lisa. Hi, Pim. Uh, I worked with one of our data scientists, Katerina Saraiva, and we started looking at where has new business growth occurred in the context of an overall slump in new business growth. And we found that Greenville stood out among regional peers and was kind of keeping up with the national average and even kind of competing with bigger cities like Boston in terms of new business activity. So we went down there to take a look. So what did you find in addition to Michelin, which as uh, the North American headquarters there? Also, Lockheed Martin's got a big presence because uh, the old Donaldson Air Force Base uh, is now a technology center. Also, General Electric has, uh, has business operations there. So what we found was a community, and I mean everybody, very focused on startups. Um, they could be technology. Uh, startups. They could be biotech startups. They could be companies like uh, Boyd Cycling, uh, which makes high-end road bike wheels in a warehouse uh, on the side of town. As long as it was new and innovative, both the civic leaders in Greenville and other businessmen were very interested. And to me, uh, Pim and Lisa, the key ingredient was a big angel network willing to fund new ideas right there in a corner of South Carolina. So here's what I'm struggling with. I feel like that's a cultural issue, and I'm wondering how many other small towns have the angel money to pour into this, or could they do something similar simply with tax cuts and other benefits? Uh, I'm glad you raised that. Probably you, I, and most people listening to this have driven through a city, no matter what state, and asked ourselves, what happened here? And as you know, this is shaping politics and policies as we put in place tariffs and immigration. So what can they do? In the story, we visited Danville, Virginia, which suffered tremendous loss through exit of textile and tobacco. And I'm glad you used the word culture, Lisa, because that's what they talk about. We need cultural change. How do we bring innovators to this city? It's not easy. Incentives play a big role for sure. But instead of looking for one big answer like Amazon HQ2, what they really want are small cells of innovation that feed on each other. Well, what's an example? I mean, give us, tell us some of the startups and and how it works, because, uh, you know, you talk about uh, the culture. Uh, uh, It's one thing to have the culture. It's another thing to have the money to actually fund these things. Okay. So one of the One of the secret weapons that Danville has is the region sold off a a health system, giving them about a quarter billion dollars to start putting incentives into community development. And I found the people who run it um, very interesting. So obviously when you have that much money in that sort of corner of the state, you get a lot of ass. And they don't give money – just to anybody. They give money to change agents. That's their that's their standard. And a change agent could be a social change agent, like they built a brand new YMCA 
right on the river. It was the first um, building on the riverfront in maybe 20, 25 years. And uh, like they told me, it's very racially integrated, which is an important uh, achievement down there. In terms of business, uh, what they're doing is trying to convince um, uh, high-tech manufacturers uh, that their community college has a special program that a third-year program that imitates workplace environments with uh, topics like conflict resolution, and they can provide the human capital for that kind of operation. And they've had a couple of successes recently, Kyocera and uh, a a biotech company called Panasutics. Are there any other cities like this? A lot of cities are visiting Greenville trying to find out what the secret sauce is. Um, you've probably heard of places like Boise and um, I think uh, uh, Nashville as having some success uh, with startups. Um, I'm glad you used the word city because it does take single-minded civic focus that this is what we want to do. We don't want to just create a number of low-skilled jobs. We want high-skill, high-talent jobs. And uh, if I may, I'm going to give you an example, Okay. There's a company in Greenville called Kayatech. Um, it's a biotech company. They're doing something very disruptive. They're testing cancer drugs on live patient cells. This company was welcomed into the local healthcare system. Their lab sits in the cancer ward of Greenville Hospital. The state is both an equity partner and a grantee to this company. And you got to ask yourself, why did they did th- do this? This is not going to generate hundreds of jobs. It's a long-term bet that this disruptive technology right. will somehow spin off even more companies and more jobs. I found that very progressive. Thanks very much. Very interesting story. I recommend it to all of our listeners. Craig Torres is our economy Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow Craig on Twitter at C. Torres Reporter, and you can check out his story on Bloomberg.com. Just minutes ago, uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin tweeted out on behalf of President Donald Trump, the stories on investment restrictions in Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal are false, fake news. The leaker either doesn't exist or though the subject very well statement will be out not specific to China, but to all countries that are trying to steal our technology. We will bring you more as we get it. But this, of course, is referring to the uh, to the topic that we were just talking about the last segment about uh, these restrictions that President Trump plans to put out there uh, under using or incurring the CFIUS uh, rule to do it. We will bring you more right now. I want to bring in Peter Kenny, founder and owner of Strategic Board Solutions, also founder and owner of Kenny & Co., uh, coming to us from New Jersey. Peter, uh, you know, this is just just one little snapshot of the back and forth that we keep getting uh, with respect to trade. Is there anything that we've gotten so far that would cause you to change your recommendation as to what investors ought to be buying or selling right now? Because of the lack of clarity and because of the number of variables, and we're talking really large, large global variables, it's difficult to say anything other than be cautious. 
And we're seeing that in the flattening yield curve. We're seeing that in the 10-year today, for example. I mean, trading at uh, 2.87 yield, that's telling us that investors are cautious. Well, hold on one second. I'm sorry to to break in here, but the idea of caution at a time when you are seeing inflation pick up and you are seeing the Federal Reserve hiking rates isn't clear. What does expressing caution mean in markets today? Well, what 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 we're seeing is a flattening yield curve and the fact that investors are looking to hedge their bets. We're seeing a a year-to-date return on the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, which is largely flat to negative. We have seen that performance by the NASDAQ, but there's clearly caution in the market. And that is in spite of what you just just mentioned, which is clearly the Fed is going to be raising rates as many as four times over the next 12 months. So we're at a, it's a very odd point in time for markets and investors because we are seeing really great earnings, great guidance, rising rates, healthy inflation, and yet we're seeing very little in the way of positive traction for equity. So, I mean, that's a conundrum. The bottom line is caution seems to be ruling today, and we're seeing that in the treasury yields, and we're seeing that in equity prices. Well, Peter, is this the time to be cautious when everybody else is? I mean, don't you want to be buying when people are not interested in in buying and you want to sell? Oh, no when, question. When, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, no, what would you be no looking question. at right now? All right. So, I mean, if you don't want to take too much of a chance, what do you go out and buy? Well, you know, my from my perspective, we're going to continue to see some really solid earnings and great economic data. Those two functions are the drivers of equity prices. And as a result, I do think that the bias remains very, very positive. As a result of that, I still like the financials primarily because of the fact that we're going to see rising rates and that will lead to expansion of net interest margin. I also like to see home builders in spite of the fact we're seeing some some asset bubbles there. Um, I think that there's the demand for housing is absolutely through the roof. We're seeing that in the dislocation in pricing, but housing and financials continue to be and will be, in my opinion, the second half and well into next year leaders. Peter, how should we think about oil? Uh, Because amid all of the trade talk, we're getting the OPEC uh, agreement to raise output, uh, but that is sort of uh, offset by the issues that we are seeing in Venezuela with oil output uh, really dramatically declining there. And of course, the tensions rising in Libya and then Iran. I mean, how are you thinking about the direction of oil prices right now? Super, super interesting. Um, So, uh, you know, crude uh, is just such an interesting topic because it is so topical relative to economic growth. The OPEC announcement on Friday was, frankly, yes, a cut, but it was so nominal and so confusing that it really didn't act to allay the fears of rising uh, of rising uh, energy prices. So we saw that huge spike up five point over five percent in one day, best one day performance for the uh, for WTI crude in, in six months. Today we're seeing a, a largely flat move, marginally fractionally higher. The bottom line is on Saturday. The OPEC minister um, from Saudi Arabia said, we're going to do whatever it takes to keep uh, energy and oil prices stable, which is an indication that there's more room for accommodation, an indication that there's more room for production increases, uh, which is why we're not seeing any follow-through from Friday's move higher. I do think that we're probably very close to a near-term top in, in crude prices. But I think the downside is limited because of the global growth, the global demand, and because of those three factors that you just mentioned, Venezuela's implosion, concerns over Iran, 
and um, Iraq and the whole Middle East, you know, matrix. And the fact that there really is an awful lot of instability in terms of the producers and what they can produce. For example, there's really only three major OPEC and non-OPEC aligned um, producers who can really move on increasing production. Uh, they can substantially, so that matters a lot, but many of the OPEC members really are at full production right now. All right, we got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Peter Kenny, founder of Strategic Board Solutions, uh, talking about the current uh, investment uh, climate. And uh, here joining us now to talk about the uh, the current tweeting environment when it comes to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is our own Saliha Mosin, who uh, co-wrote the story about the U.S. planning curbs on Chinese investments, uh, this citing the security risks as the reason. Uh, Saliha, what do you make of the uh, the Treasury Secretary's uh, response to this reporting? Yeah, you know, he always speaks very, very carefully. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, he said, quote, the statement will uh, not be specific to China. So uh, there's a statement and then there's a lot of other matter that would go, you know, there's a public side of any report and there's a private side. So uh, our sources have told us that uh, the research that's being done in the administration has to do with China. Uh, we have uh, the White House's top economic, or sorry, top trade advisor, Pierre Navarro, who has laid the groundwork for such action specifically towards China with a 36-page report that he put out last week that is all about China and China's economic aggression. Uh, so I think Mnuchin is using the opportunity to refer just to his statement yeah. uh, and maybe not directly to what goes behind that. Saleha, just real quick here, we've got about a minute left. Is this unusual for uh, Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin to take to Twitter to respond to something? He does follow in the president's footsteps with a lot of these things, not footsteps, but take lead from him. Uh, it is rare for him to call out a specific media uh, report, but at the same time, he is probably hearing from investors, from market participants, and even Chinese officials uh, for more details. And so I actually wonder if part of the message is to go to allies or specifically to China or markets on this. Well, we'll, of course, be waiting to hear uh, more news from the Treasury Secretary and uh, look forward to getting that uh, news release. I want to thank you very much, uh, Salia Mosin, uh, for your story. Uh, well worth reading on uh, Bloomberg.com, Treasury Department planning to heighten security of Chinese investments in sensitive U.S. industries under an emergency law. And uh, we wait to hear if there's any update on that. Much appreciated for your reporting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.